Well, we are talking about law today in, in 1 Corinthians 6, not exclusively. I feel like I should start with the lawyer joke, Jeremy, but I, I'm going to exercise restraint. Um, when, I was, when I was growing up in the 80s, I think this is when it really, at least when it became popular, courtroom um, reality television shows. And so the People's Court, Judge Wapner presiding, and I watched that a lot as a kid. I don't know why that was so fascinating to me. Uh, but then in the 90s, Judge Judy came on the scene, and she's still going strong. She ha- there are 4,375 episodes of Judge Judy out there, 25 seasons. I'm not, like, keeping a tally. Don't, don't worry. Uh, but Wikipedia has told me that. So she's won multiple Emmys for her show, and where she basically makes, oftentimes, just makes grown men look like... Uh, uh, disobedient little children or something like that on public television. And so, but, the, but this public airing of personal grievances, not, there's many other shows like these, they, it makes for great entertainment in a culture like ours, doesn't it? I mean, this is, this is something I think that probably could happen only in America in this, in this modern day. And we just eat this stuff up. And, but I'm sure if the Corinthians had the technology that we have, they would love Judge Judy too. Um, in, in Corinth, personal and legal disputes were hashed out all the time in these public gatherings with large audiences listening in as, as litigants aired, their, aired one another's dirty laundry and brought these uh, personal conflicts out into the open and argued their cases before others. And so whenever the court assembled, crowds would just would gather around and take in this whole spectacle of neighbor accusing neighbor of wrongdoing and and all the time it made for great theater and it, it was it was like entertainment in their day this is what people did they watched this and so there are a lot of parallels actually between that kind of greco-roman culture and our own when it comes to to thinking like this both very litigious societies uh, both generally cared more about winning than actually about justice and so it was about personal advancement at the expense of anyone who stood in their way. That's how the this courts were seen. Both systems tended to tilt in favor of those of higher social and economic uh, status. They had the ability to pay for, we have in our culture, the ability to pay for those high-powered attorneys. And, and they had their version of that, paying for orders. Their attorneys were more like public speakers who argued their cases. And so it's, there's, there's parallels that I think we can't miss here. But, but what we see here, Paul is a realist. He, he understands, he knows full well that sinful people are going to have disputes with one another. We're not going to always get along. And so, even in the church, but he's, he's beside himself here. And, and you can pick that up in the, the line of questioning. Or he's beside himself with how the Christians in Corinth, how this church is handling disputes with one another. Rather than working these things out and applying what he's talked about in this letter, the the wisdom and the power of God that's there in the cross of Jesus Christ, the message of Christ crucified, instead they're depending on the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world, and they're taking each other to court, suing one another. And so this is the question, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against one another, not if, but when, it's going to happen. Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous and When he says unrighteous, he's talking about those pagan judges, those unbelieving judges, instead of the saints. Does he 
dare, that the word dare it could be translated like this. Does he, does he really have the audacity to do this? Paul's saying this conduct, it's completely out of character with Christianity, out of place. And so with that said, let's just talk briefly uh, how this fits within the context of this letter. If you, again, you've been with us, we, we're, we've been talking, last week we, we transitioned in the letter and we started talking about, he's talking about sexual immorality and discipline in the church. And then at the end of this chapter, he's going to come back to that and talk about sexual sin. And then he's going to transition very naturally into chapter seven and talk about marriage and, 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 and a God honoring form of sexuality. And so, but plopped right in the middle of all this is this stuff about lawsuits. How in the world does this relate? I think the simplest uh, answer uh, is, uh, where I was helped by is a commentator named Gordon Fee. He, he, he says Paul is addressing in these chapters, quote, the failure of the church to be the church. That's what he's getting at. That's what ties us together. There, there are these symptoms of, the, of their failure in these different areas of life in the fellowship of, at, at Corinth. On the one hand, they're refusing to take very serious sexual sin seriously. They're just kind of turning a blind eye to incest in the church. And then on the other hand, they're, they're trigger happy when it comes to taking one another to court and, and bringing these uh, personal disputes out in public and airing them out in front of the culture there. And so both of these tendencies show, tendencies show they're failing to be who they are. They're failing to be the church, to live like they truly are, the blood-bought family of God. And so that they're failing to understand and apply the gospel in the context of this Christian community there. And so like every issue he deals with in this letter, Paul's showing us how the good news of Christ crucified really works into the gritty realities of life in a, in a, in a messed up world like ours and in, and in a messed up church with messed up sinners like us. He's, that's what he's showing. And so basically he, he gives the church at Corinth the following diagnosis. And it's really something we could see throughout this letter. But he basically says, you have, you have gospel amnesia. I'm borrowing that expression, but it's so helpful. Gospel amnesia. Uh, I was thinking of, along these lines of amnesia. I was just looking for a story. And I read there's a, a guy in, in, uh, in South Georgia. He was found, his name, well, he, he adopted the name Benjamin Kyle for himself. But he was found beaten and abandoned behind a dumpster in Richmond Hill, Georgia, back in 2004. And he was found. He had amnesia, didn't have any idea who he was. And nobody else did either. He had no ID on him. There were no missing person reports filed. So, so he spent years, years with the help of many other people scouring the Internet, looking for himself trying to figure out who he is, to, to fill in his missing backstory. He, he lost his identity. He didn't know who he was. Well, the Corinthians, they're, they're behaving as if something similar has happened to them. They, they, they have this kind of, of gospel amnesia, the good news about Jesus and their new identity in him. It's, it's been overlooked. It's been ignored. It's been forgotten in situation after situation. So you notice Paul's repeated question in the text. Do you not know? There are things they ought to know. Paul has spent two years teaching them and, and has written a previous letter to them. Cephas taught many of them. Uh, Apollos was, had spent a lot of time with him laboring to teach them. Others had opened the scriptures with them. They had been well taught in the gospel. And they ought to know, but they seem to have forgotten. 
And it's not because of some brain injury or blunt force trauma to the head or something like that. It is, theirs is a case of actually very willful gospel amnesia. And there are tragic consequences that follow, as we've already seen and will continue to see. And so Paul's treating their gospel amnesia here with, with, with these, in three steps, three doses of medicine to, to help them recover. And three, three ways that our true gospel identity should shape who we are. And so in verses 1 to 3, he's going to talk about our future, that we're, where we're going now that we're Christians, our destiny. You see that. And then in verses 4 to 8, he's, he's going to re- look at our present. He calls us to face up to how we're living now in spite of the fact that we are Christians. And then he, he gives us a dose of our past, who we became by the grace of God when he made us Christians. And so if we can ingest these, we will begin to recover a true sense of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And that will change everything. It will. The church will be able to really be the church. And so one other quick disclaimer, and I I just have to say this because this passage has been misused and misapplied in a lot of of ways. But one one way in particular, I'll just say this. Paul's not saying that, quote, secular courts have no authority. It's not that Christians can't obtain justice in civil courts. Or, Or we could say even more importantly this. It's not that criminal matters ought to be kept quiet and handled internally by the church. Churches have, again, gotten in a lot of trouble over this. And so things like abuse and embezzlement and other other criminal matters, they shouldn't be dealt with internally. That's not the God-given jurisdiction that the Lord has given the church. He's given us government as as a minister for good. And so Paul sees governing authorities, including law and courts, as God's ministers ordained and appointed for our good, Romans 13. And so what Paul's talking about here, it's not that, it's, it's the problem of Christians going to court against one another over just personal disputes. Can't get along. We shouldn't appear on Judge Judy. That's not where we hash it out. Um, and that's not to say that handling disputes between believers is easy. Oh, no, it's not. It's not at all. Our hope is not in the church and this person's ability to handle it, but our hope is in the Lord who's given the church what? We need sinners saved by grace, clinging to Christ, endowed with the Spirit of God, being built up in the Word of God. We, we can help one another resolve disputes rather than going to court. And so, all right, with that said, let's jump right in. Let's see this prescription in the few minutes we have. So this prescription for gospel amnesia. First one is this. It's, we need a dose of our future dose of our future. And so he's going to begin to tell us why we should settle disputes within the church rather than, than going outside when believers, when believers fall out and disagree with one another. So he, first he points to our future destiny. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And so in the background here, there are, there are many Old Testament texts and other New Testament texts, probably passages like Matthew uh, 19, 28, where Jesus says to his disciples, one day you're going to sit and you're going you're to sit on thrones and judge the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. So, so we will reign and we will judge along with Jesus Christ. This is our glorious future destiny. That's what Paul's referring to here. So, so he's saying if, if we are made competent by the Lord to assist in the judgment of the world on the day of judgment, 
Are we not competent to judge less weighty matters like personal disputes between believers? But there's more. Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So not only will we participate in the judgment of people, we will even participate in the judgment of these majestic angelic beings. Now, the particulars of this are actually not really spelled out in Scripture. But, but, but what a future. I do think a passage like 1 Corinthians 15 and 24 to 28, where all things are, are made in subjection to Jesus Christ. All things will be subject to him. And we who are in Christ are are, are, are placed over them as well, including angelic beings. And so this destiny should fill us with wonder. It should, it should shake us from our gospel amnesia uh, uh, that's behind our failure for the church to be the church together. We together have this glorious future, and so the way we relate to one another now, the way we handle disputes in the church now, it, it should be radically shaped by the, by, by the reality of our participation in the age to come. That's what Paul's saying. Remember where you're going. You will one day sit with Christ in this final tribunal. So help one another get along now. Remember your future destiny. Live in light of it. All right, that's the first dose. Second dose is one of our present. And Paul says we we need to face up, though, to how we're actually living now. That's the future. How are you living now? And he, he asks another series of questions to really open that up. And so despite the fact that we're Christians with this glorious future, what's the reality within the church at Corinth? And the key to his argument, I think, in verses 4 to 8 is, is notice the repetition of the word brother. Let's look at these verses. So, so if you have such cases, verse 4, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So this, this gospel amnesia means that their identity in Christ together, that their brothers in Christ, it ceased to function in any meaningful way. In the way that they're thinking and talking and acting. The fact that they're brothers and sisters through faith in Jesus, that they are family, it ought to have made all of the difference for them. But instead, they're arguing their cases before those who have, quote, no standing in the church, verse 4. Now, he's not saying that we we should hide our sins and conflicts from, uh, from unbelievers. That's not his point. He's asking us, though, to demonstrate that the cross of Christ is God's solution to all problems associated with human sinfulness. It is, including our conflicts with one another. So verse 5, he he says they ought to be ashamed of themselves. I say this to your shame. Can it it be that there is no one among you wise enough to to settle the dispute between the brothers? Remember the Corinthians. They they boasted in their superior wisdom. They, They were so proud of how wise they were. And Paul says, well, then if you're so wise, isn't there, isn't there anyone able to, to help mediate between brothers? When instead they're going before unbelievers, the unrighteous for a decision, verse 6. And then he says in verse 7, that is already a defeat for you. It's already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I mean, to take a brother to court over a personal dispute, he's saying it's already a loss. 
Whatever the outcome of the legal process. That's not the point. The outcome before the court doesn't really matter. There are no winners in these cases. You may win the lawsuit. They may lose. But both, both parties end up in defeat, bringing shame to the church. Instead of a, of a gospel victory, we might say, there's, there's a defeat. I mean, this is God's design in the church is that those who belong to Jesus become one family, brothers and sisters. And, and what binds us together isn't our background. It's not our, it's not our income bracket. It's not our hobbies or interests. It's not our culture, or ethnicity, or social standing, or anything like that. It's all of those ways that the world groups people together. We have become one in Christ with people we have otherwise nothing in common. We're family. We're bound together with these sacred bonds of gospel love. So now we forgive. We turn the other cheek and we pursue peace and we practice patience. And so when relationships under, under the church come under pressure and there's every reason, every reason, humanly speaking, for them to fracture and fragment and turn sour and fall apart, when believers in the church instead pursue one another in love and seek reconciliation, that's victory. That's victory. That's gospel victory. But when that doesn't happen, when that wasn't happening in Corinth, Paul says it's already defeat. It's already defeat. I've already gone back to the default attitudes and actions of their old lives before Christ. And so what we should pursue, though, is, is gospel victory, not personal victory, not winning over the other person. In fact, he says it would, it would be better for us to be wrong, it would be better for us to be shortchanged and come out kind of losing, humanly speaking, on the other side and, and yet not risk breaking up Christ's body by taking these disputes to court. So does the world see this in the church? Does he, does he see this, brothers and sisters, in this local church? Is gospel victory on display? Or where those, that, those watching see defeat as we maintain kind of self-protective, self-defensive, suspicious, grudge-holding, angry, bitter contention towards one another. Paul says, we ought to be shamed. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're still acting like the world. Christ died for us. His spirit lives inside of us. His, his word directs our steps, and yet we still... Pursue our petty complaints and our self-centered squabbles. And he says, what a defeat. And so he, he calls us to remember our future, this, this destiny of what's to come. And, 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 and then he calls us to face up, though, to the way things are actually right now. To see things as they, these things really, that really ought not to be in the church. And then finally, we get this dose of our past. Our past, verses 9 to 11. And so he reminds us of who we became when, by God's grace, he made us Christians. He reminds them of a truth, a basic truth that they seem to have forgotten. Verse 9, he says again this question, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, back in verse 1, this is, what he, this is how he refers to those, those uh, unbelieving judges. They're, they're, they're the unrighteous ones. And so he says, let me show you the destiny of the unrighteous, of the, we could say, unjustified. And he points to this characteristic behavior of those outside the church. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We're saying unjustified sinners, they're excluded from God's kingdom. And then he drops the bombshell in verse 11. 
Because the gospel has been preached to the Corinthians and the, and the power of God has been manifest among them. There are these amazing results that God has brought. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So he's saying some of these Corinthian believers, they were sexually immoral idolaters. Some were adulterers and, and prostitutes. Some were homosexual. Some were greedy, drunkards, liars, swindlers. I mean, based upon this list, we'll talk more about this next week, the, they, were, they were likely deeply involved in paganism, whether as worshipers or whether as, as those who served in the pagan temples. And so parents, just look ahead to the passage next week, a little, little warning, it will be PG, but it won't be G. I mean, just the passage itself, just reading it. So I'm just giving you a little heads up, and you might want to think through and talk with your kids. So, so, but he's saying, now these, these same people, they've been washed. They've been sanctified, set apart. They've been justified, declared righteous in the name of Christ through the preaching of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating Holy Spirit. And so the focus here, he's, he's, he's emphasizing the completeness of their salvation. We are we're new creations. A, a definitive act has taken place. We've received all of Christ's saving benefits by faith. And so he's not laying out a sequence here. These aren't like uh, sequential experiences that we, we've gone through. No, I, I think Calvin hits it on the head here. He says these, these are describing one fundamental transformation that's occurred for all those who now are united to Christ. All of these blessings come to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other by, by virtue of our union with Christ through the gospel and by the Spirit of God who, who, <coughs> who binds all believers together under the head Jesus Christ. And so what matters now is not what we once did. What matters now is that we are in Christ. That's what he's saying. And this is the Lord's doing. And say so you washed yourselves or you chose to be washed. You took yourselves to the wash. No, he says, we were, passive voice, washed. The Lord has done this. And so his, his focus is on this contrast between what the Corinthians were and what they are. And since this is what they are, how can they possibly continue to act like unbelievers who engage in immorality like we looked at last week and who are, who are taking one of the court this week, who engage in fornication and adultery like we'll see next week? I mean, this is, this is the pattern that we so often see in Paul. It's a very clear example of that, that indicative. You are in Christ. That proceeds and it grounds the imperative. Therefore, act accordingly. This is what we see over and over. He's saying, here's the issue. Gospel amnesia. You've, you've forgotten that you are now, not now who you once were. If you really get this, you'd be changed. And the way we live together wouldn't be defeat. It would be victory. It would be gospel victory. He says, it's time to start being who you really are. Remember your new, true identity. This is what we need. This is what I need. This is what you need. This is what we need together as a church in our, in our daily conflict, in our daily struggle to live for the glory of Christ and to pursue very practical holiness in our lives, brothers and sisters. So many of us are tempted to think, what, we, what I need, I need this extra dose of supernatural power. 
Or what we need is a church. We need some, some Jews to just come inject it into this church, and, and it's just going to change everything. And so we've got we to have this new thing or this, this better thing, this greater thing, this more exciting thing. That's not Paul's counsel at all. His counsel isn't to look for something new or something extra. He says his counsel is to go back, go back to what God has already done for us in Christ. To understand the gospel, our, our new identity in him. Get that very clear in our minds over and over again. To, to begin to press it down into every pore and every crack and every crevice of, of our life together as a church. To let it percolate uh, all the way through. Begin to, and, and then we begin to live in that light. That's what he's, that's what he's pushing for. No longer slaves to sin. No longer, no longer mastered by our old life. Children of grace. Adopted into the family of God. Born again by the Spirit of God. Clean, washed, righteous, set apart. Not with our own righteousness. It's, it's it, as though these sins that Paul lists here aren't present in the lives of, of believers even now. And we don't struggle with these things. No, believers in Jesus we will inherit the kingdom not because we, we don't stumble or fall or fail. We will inherit the kingdom because we're counted righteous in Christ. And when we grasp that, the, the wonder and joy of that all, this is what he's wanting to set before them, the glories of this. It will begin, it will begin to animate. It will begin to give strength to our hands. It will begin to give steely resolve to our wills. It, and, and, and so that we will begin to pursue obedience to King Jesus together with joyful hearts. And in, in the context of this, we'll begin to press in when relationships begin to fracture. Instead of pulling back, we'll pursue reconciliation. Even when everything, everything inside of us says to retreat back to the world's ways. Stand behind our barricades, launch grenades at one another, wound and destroy one another. No, when we understand who we really are in Christ, we become servants of one another instead and pursue reconciliation. That would not be defeat, would it? That would not. Let me just, a couple, uh, one word. And, and, and this is, if you, are, if you are not in Christ, if you're tuning in online, if you're sitting here today and you've been around the church, but you, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. And, you, and, and part of the thing that's held you back is this thought, the Lord wouldn't want me anyway. Maybe because uh, you, you, you feel like you're beyond the reach of his grace. Some of you, you think your, your sin excludes you from ever being welcomed by Christ. And so there's, there's shame, and it's real, and it seems just overwhelming to you. You don't think you'll ever be, he, he wouldn't want me, look at me, look at what I've done, look at who I've been, look at how I've treated other people, look at how I've treated my own body. Read verse 11 again. What does he say? And such were some of you. Swindlers, crooks, thieves, homosexuals, idolaters, adulterers. The Corinthian church was full of them. Baraka Bible Church is full of them. The kingdom of heaven is full of them. Heaven is full of people who once were. Such were some of you. There is hope for us because there is hope for the worst of us in Jesus Christ. He loves to take guilty sinners and wash them 
set them apart, justify them, not on the basis of their resolve or their ability to clean themselves up before they come to the Lord, but on the basis of faith in, in Christ's wrath-absorbing work on the cross in his triumphant resurrection. On what Jesus has done. So come to Jesus dirty. Come to Jesus ashamed. Come to him fearful. Come to him with your sin intact and let him do it all. He will wash you so that though you may feel filthy, you will be made clean. He will set you apart for himself. Even though you were enslaved to sin, he, he will, where your guilt dominated you and you were so ashamed, he will robe you with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it will be that God looks upon you as if he's looking upon the perfect obedience of his son. So there's, there's no one beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. So come, guilty sinner. sinner. Come to him today. Cry out to him now. Confess your sin. Confess your inadequacy and your hopelessness of, 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 of earning the smile of God on your own, of ever cleaning yourself up and say, Lord, I, I can do nothing. I need grace. I need your mercy. And you provided for, me, for it perfectly in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. And trust him today. Cry out to him now. Talk to us once you do that. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we are often... We are often full of gospel amnesia. We, 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 we're, we've neglected who we truly are. We've still lived as though we, we are who we once were, not who we are now in Christ. Would you, would you forgive us for living so far below our privileges as children of God, adopted by your grace, cleansed, set apart for your glory, and justified in the heavenly courts? Please have mercy on us. And as we, as we take in the wonder of who you have made us to be, would you empower us and enable us to live out who we really are as a church? Such were some. Such were all of us, really. But we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ and through your Spirit's power. Hallelujah. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.